Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. In the NOCO is supported by Blue Federal Credit Union, with locations from Denver to Cheyenne, helping members tap into the power of community. More information at bluefcu.com. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, we celebrate National Fossil Day with the latest on the restoration of northern Colorado's most famous fossil, Pops the Triceratops. In a not-so-dignified way, it was how we told people where the restrooms were. Because we tell them, go out to the lobby, and they're right by the dinosaur. And we talk with a mental health expert who specializes in recovery from cults. That's coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. Wednesday is National Fossil Day. The National Park Service has recognized this annual fossil celebration since 2010, but this year, parts of northern Colorado are joining the party for the first time. They're inspired by Pops the Triceratops, who has been the official fossil of Weld County since the mid-1980s. Last winter, KUNC's Ray Solomon brought us the story of Pops, who was found in the early 80s on land belonging to Sonny Mapelli, who donated the dinosaur skull to Weld County. Triceratops t-shirts were printed for the occasion. There was even a public contest to name it. Pops ultimately won out. And a declaration making it the official Weld County fossil. Communications Director Jennifer Finch says the donation came with just one condition. That that fossil would remain in Weld County, in a county building, so that all the public could come in and see it. And that's how Pops ended up behind glass in the fluorescent-lit lobby of the Weld County Administrative Building. In a not-so-dignified way, it was how we told people where the restrooms were. Because we tell them, go out to the lobby, <laughs> and they're right by the dinosaur. <laughs> Ray is here with us now with some updates about Weld County's favorite dinosaur just in time for National Fossil Day. Hi, Ray. Hey, happy National Fossil Day to you. (laughs) And many happy returns of the day to you too, (laughs) Erin. Ray, last winter you introduced us to the dinosaur fossil pops that belongs to Weld County. And you told us about how the fossil had been removed to the Denver Museum of Nature and Science to be cleaned up and restored. Uh, For all of us who are major Pops fans, uh, how is that process going? Erin, it's going great. Uh, When I first reported the story, the museum paleontologists were still in the early stages of carefully removing rock and plaster from the bone. So we have Pops in every corner of the lab right now. Back in the fossil lab, preparator Salvador Bastian bends over the skull with an air scribe. It's sort of like a tiny air-powered jackhammer. So we're just using this to remove the plaster cleanly from the fossil so that we can see all of the actual bone and study the true shape of what this animal would look like in life. Well, Joe Sertich, the curator of dinosaurs at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science, told me that they wrapped up that work over the summer and you might recall that Dr. Sertich and his team found a trove of additional bones that had been thrown into some boxes underneath the display case. Well, they worked on those pieces too. And according to Dr. Sertich, there were some real finds in there. Uh, and in those boxes were probably about 20 ribs, um, many of them in pieces, but several complete ribs, uh, parts of the backbone. So there's parts of the middle of the back, parts of the tail, parts of the neck, uh, and a couple parts of the pelvis, so some of the hip bones. 
I'd say we probably got another 35 new completish bones. Um, and the real prize in that collection was the lower jaw. So the skull with pops was known for the last 40 years, but hiding in that box were chunks that all glued back together to a complete lower jaw. He says it's a pretty big deal to have basically the complete skull of a dinosaur. You know, it's from a time period that we just don't know a lot about. Yeah, a very big deal, which also reminds me, Ray, there was sort of a cliffhanger in your last story. Uh, It had to do with the age of the fossil and Pops' identity. Um, The paleontologist thought that Pops might not even be a triceratops. Yep. And long story short, there there's still some work to do there, but Dr. Surtage is now certain that Pops is something a bit more off the beaten path than your average run-of-the-mill triceratops. There were some features of the skull, and they're really subtle, so they might not be noticeable to, to a lot of people, but um, to a dinosaur lover like me, they're pretty obvious. And once we cleared off some of the, the old muck and old rock, we were able to confirm that there are features of the skull that don't look like a triceratops. And so this is an ancestor on the lineage to that iconic triceratops dinosaur. And then, yeah, we have to confirm, is this an eotriceratops or is this even totally different from that? Now, eotriceratops is an ancestor to the more popular triceratops. Uh, To someone who's just casually admires dinosaurs, it's probably a distinction without a difference. But... This is actually really exciting for true aficionados. Just ask my six-year-old son. (laughs) I bet. Pops might even be a species that's new to science, and Dr. Surtage will be studying the bones a bit more before he can publish his findings, and that'll likely take about a year or so. This is exciting, but I guess we'll have to wait a little while. Um, Now, is Pops heading back to Welg County anytime soon? Not quite yet. First, he's got to make a stop over in Fruta on the Western Slope, where he's spending a few months with this guy. Um, We're a business that uh, reconstructs uh, extinct uh, animal skeletons, mostly dinosaurs, but also prehistoric mammals and reptiles and things of that nature. Rob Gaston is one of the world's premier dinosaur restorers and modelers, according to Dr. Surtich. This guy is the real deal, Aaron. He even has a dinosaur named after him, the Gastonia. Uh, I had the honor of having the genus named after me. It's, it's an armored dinosaur, kind of like an ankylosaur with lots of spines and plates and things of that nature. So it's a really cool animal. Whoa, that's amazing. I'm, of course, picturing uh, Rob Gaston with spines and plates all over him, but I'm assuming he doesn't look like that. Probably not. I only spoke to him on the phone. But so Gaston says that when he's done, there will be three versions of Pops. First, he's casting a perfect replica of all the bones so that scientists at the museum can study them the way they came out of the ground. But remember, uh, the original bones have to be returned to Weld County for display. So when he's done with that casting of all the bones separately. We're going to do a little a little actual work on the skull itself after it's molded and get it into, you know, a more showy form, shall we say, you know, for the public to see. But, you know, with, with the original, there's just so much you want to do on it. You don't really want to go trying to modify, cut, break, or do anything like that to an original specimen. Those are very important to the science. And at some point, whether it's in our lifetime or or the next generation, somebody's going to want to study those things. And if they're, you know, if there's a lot of restoration putty, things like that on them, they're, they're more difficult to, to, to observe. So, you know, that'll be like filling in some gaps where the puzzle pieces are missing. And then 
POPs number three will be something called a restoration cast. You know, some fossils are buried the better part of a mile underground. They've got uh, tons and tons of sediment above them. It, when you get to that depth, there's a lot of heat and pressure. You, you know, you think of them as solid rock, but they're, you know, there's enough heat and pressure that they're like Play-Doh. They get, uh, they get pliable and they start getting squished. And that's where Gaston's sculpting skills really come into play. He'll take another cast of the skull and sculpt it by hand to correct for all the distortion. It's very long and laborious, and <laughs> it, it takes a lot of patience. Okay, and then finally back up to Weld County after that? You got it. And communications director Jennifer Finch says they are preparing a whole new display for the fossil. Yes, Pop, Pops has guarded our restrooms for years. <laughs> so we have agreed, the board has agreed that um, it actually... Uh, the new case that we'll have will be in a more um, prominent spot in our lobby. So it'll actually be right in front of the hearing room. So as soon as you walk into the building, you will see Pops in his new display case. They've also commissioned some artwork for the display from a famous paleo artist, Andre Etuchin. Uh, so Pops will definitely have a more impressive home when he returns. More impressive than being right by the restrooms. Um, when is this expected to happen? That'll be in early 2022. All right, Ray, well, is that more or less the end of Pops's story? Not quite. Pops has a new lease on the afterlife in the digital world. This whole past year, Jennifer Finch has been making some delightful hay following Pops' story online. Uh, he now has a significant web presence. Well, social media has um, been fun. Uh, we have we've have platforms on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Videos are going up on YouTube. So that's been fun to engage with a whole new community. We originally thought that this would be a way to get Weld County residents excited about something that was found in their own backyard. And while it has, Pops has also reached a community that is worldwide. So on our social media, uh, we have people following the Pops project from literally around the world. So Japan and South Korea and over in Europe and South America and Canada. So that's been exciting to watch. And she says she's likely to keep that up. Um, who doesn't love dinosaurs? And in Will County, we're fortunate enough to have our own fossil that um, we can kind of promote and and share with the world. All right. Well, we really appreciate all of that. Now, Ray, I have to ask you, are you doing anything special for National Fossil Day? Well, you know, kind of every day is Fossil Day in our house. So I will probably be curling up with my kids this evening and reading a good dinosaur book. But, you know, I also want to leave my kids and you and the listeners uh, with this last thought from Dr. Sturdage, one of his uh, more profound takes on National Fossil Day. Well, this is such a great celebration of our natural history heritage, all the fossils that are all around us. And here in Colorado, we're really lucky that we're on top of these fossils. Um, but it's also a celebration of public lands and the, the way that we preserve these fossils for future generations. So I'm a paleontologist. I love going out to dig. People often ask me, uh, are you going to get all the dinosaurs or have they already been found? And what I always say to, to the next generation of, of young paleontologists is there's so much more out there. And so these places are protecting these fossils for the next generation of paleontologists to go out and dig. So come check out fossils, but also know that there's more in the ground waiting for you. Excellent. Ray, thank you so much for uh, sharing this update. Anytime, Erin.
Climate change is raising temperatures, changing weather patterns, and causing droughts. It also impacts wildlife, like the American pika. Global warming is threatening its high mountain habitat in Colorado and other parts of the West. But a group of scientists and outdoor enthusiasts are trying to help. Earlier this summer, KUNC's Ashley Pacconi ventured out to learn more about the American pika and the work being done to help maintain its habitat. Thank you all for coming here today. On a rainy morning, a group of about 30 people gathered in a parking lot off Trail Ridge Road in Rocky Mountain National Park. You are joining a long tradition of pika patrollers scouring the Rocky Mountains of Colorado for pika and helping us to learn about them and ensure that we are aware of the trajectory of them in Colorado. That's Alex Wells. He's a co-director of the Colorado Pika Project. If you've ever been hiking above treeline, you've probably seen or heard the critters. But if you haven't... Pika, you're looking for something like the size of a russet potato, really fluffy, gray or brown, Mickey Mouse ears, no tail. The crew heads out of the parking lot and down a nearby trail. We're clearly in the alpine tundra. We're surrounded by mountain peaks that still have traces of snow. Shrubs and rocks cover the ground instead of trees. About a half mile in, we stop at a patch of big, broken rocks called a talus. This is prime habitat for the pika. The first thing we look for is scat. To identify pika scat, you're going to want to look underneath rocks, like there or there. Oftentimes, larger rocks will have scat underneath it. And you're looking for something about the size of a peppercorn. And midway through his explanation, a pika chimes in. So that's scat. Anyone have an idea for what our next kind of pika sign might be? Yeah, so pika calls. So you guys just heard what a pika sounds like. It's just classic squeaky toy. Pikas also create hay piles, neat stacks of grass and leafy plants under rocks. Megan Mueller is also a co-director of the project. She says they hoard their stashes for the winter months. There was a study in southern Colorado that found that the average pika hay pile there was 60 pounds of fresh vegetation. And if you do the calculation about how many trips with mouthfuls of vegetation that is, it's 14,000 trips. Pikas like the cold, but as temperatures warm, their habitat is changing. Pika scientist and University of Colorado Boulder professor Chris Ray says a warmer alpine means other animals might move into their territory, bringing diseases along with them. We might have ways of helping pikas uh, as, as their environment deteriorates. Um, we might have ways of sort of mitigating that through controlling diseases. The Colorado Pika Project monitors specific sites across the state. After this training session and throughout the summer, each volunteer in this group will go out on their own to look for pikas. In addition to finding out whether pikas are, are disappearing from our sites, we're also very interested in trying to figure out um, if they are starting to decline because of climate change, why is that? Volunteers will submit what they find by the end of the summer. Then scientists like Ray use the results to determine if pikas live in the area and what that means for the species overall. Data from this have gone into recently a, a paper in Nature Climate Change, for example. So your, your data are making a difference and an impact on the scientific world right now. After we finish looking for scat, hay piles, and pikas themselves, the group begins to walk back to the parking lot. 
I live outside. I spend a ton of time in Pika territory, so I see them on hikes and runs and things. Volunteer Abby Hughes says the mountain views around us are exactly why she signed up. I always thought it was really interesting to learn a little bit more about them and see how they're being affected by climate change and how we can help monitor that. Although most of the group just learned about pika signs today, co-director Megan Mueller has been working on this project for 10 years. She says it's about more than tracking the animals. We want to be able to predict what the impacts are going to be out in advance so that we have an ability to try to figure out strategies to mitigate the impacts of climate change. Before the group wraps up, Mueller and her team pass out supplies, baggies to collect scat, GPS units, and more. In the coming months, volunteers will use this gear to conduct their very own PICA surveys. Ashley Picconi, KUNC. You can learn more about the work of the PICA project and see some adorable PICA pictures at our website, KUNC.org. While you're there, you can also find all of our online election coverage. As ballots are being mailed out, you may have questions about the three statewide measures. KUNC's state capitol reporter Scott Franz has an in-depth look at each of them. Again, that's at KUNC.org. And you're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. On April 28th, mummified remains of the leader of a cult known as Love Has Won were found in the group's southern Colorado home in the town of Moffat. The body of Amy Carlson, known as Mother God to her followers, was in a sleeping bag wrapped in Christmas lights with glitter painted around her eyeless sockets. Law enforcement said she had likely been dead for more than a week. Seven Love Has Won followers were initially arrested in connection with Carlson's death, but as of September, charges have been dropped against all members. The cult, which has been described as a blend of Christianity, political conspiracy theories, New Age spirituality, and historical myths, was estimated to have between 10 and 20 full-time members when Carlson died. Mental health experts who specialize in recovery from cults say escaping can be like leaving an abusive relationship. One of those experts is Roseanne Henry, a Littleton-based counselor who has specialized in cult recovery for nearly 30 years. Back in May, Colorado Edition's Tess Novotny spoke with Roseanne about what recovery from a cult like Love Has Won can look like. She began by explaining how she first came to work in cult recovery. Many of us are in the field because we've had personal experience in cults. And I was in a cult in the late 70s, another turbulent time in our lives like today. And I ended up in a kind of Eastern Hindu-based cult, my husband and I, for a few years. And we were fortunate to leave after a few years, but we still deal with some of the after effects of that experience. I understood that therapists did not understand cults through that process. And I'd always had an interest in psychology, and I decided that's what I wanted to turn my career towards that. At the age of 40, I went back to grad school, and then I've been developing this cult recovery specialty since then because there's such a need for it, and there's very few counselors who understand how this operates. Why might someone become involved with a cult in the first place? What we do know, and the research over the last 40 years has confirmed, is that people tend to, quote, join cults, although they don't join cults, they get involved with groups that they finally figure out are cults. 
when they're in a point of transition in their lives, period. That's all that we know that's a defining feature. Most people join groups because they think the group has a valuable mission or it's going to improve their life or it's going to create a community or a family of sorts for them or give them a greater spiritual experience than an organized religion. For instance, that was my intent when I, quote, joined my Hindu cult. So most people join these organizations with very good intentions. And when you're in a point of transition in your life, you're going to be a little less defended and you're going to be more vulnerable to believe what they say. If they give you a message that makes sense to you or resonates with you personally, that's more likely that you're going to consider what they have to say and then sign on for the first seminar or listen to the, uh, the preacher for three hours instead of one or, you know, whatever is involved in entering the group. What makes a successful cult leader? Like, what, what do they do to draw people in? Oh, a successful cult leader has to have charisma, of course. You know, they have to be able to lead. But my experience with cult leaders are many of them have serious psychological problems. In fact, I believe many of them have personality disorders. And that's been my experience in 30 years, that the, on the mild end are the narcissists and on the extreme end are the sociopaths. And they have to be able to function and to be able to continue to hold up the promises for a certain period of time that they make people to keep them. How do people eventually realize they're in a cult and, and maybe try to leave? Many people leave these groups not knowing they've been in a cult, myself included. Many people walk away. The majority of people do walk away from groups when they finally had enough. You're leaving your family, you're leaving your God, you're leaving your belief system, you're leaving your work. It's all of that. And while you're leaving, you have these parting curses in your head, which is what the cult leader said is going to happen if you leave. And for me, I, I gave up in enlightenment. When I left my group, I knew I wasn't going to be enlightened without that cult leader. That's what I really believed, that she had that kind of control over me. So many people think they give up nirvana, heaven, enlightenment, whatever. And then other people have to work with other basic things like cult leaders saying things like, you know, you're going to go blind or your mother's going to get cancer or your child's going to die. I mean, these things really happen in organizations. And when you're in them, you really believe that the leaders have that kind of control. And so it's very hard to sort out that reality. And that's an important part of cult recovery, but it takes time. What do you do when clients reach out to you? How do you help them? Of course, it depends on each client that approaches me. Most people these days that approach me were actually what I call kids raised in cults. And, and they're now kids that are in their 30s and 40s who have been out of the cult for a decade or two and are finally able to deal with what happened back there. And kids raised in cults, you know, basically lived in a very distorted world. Um, many of them had to deal with a lot of oppression, in my opinion, and a lot of abuse. But they're finally at a place that they can acknowledge it. And so sometimes we work with developmental problems. Sometimes we work with social problems. Sometimes we work with the rage they have at their parents for, uh, you know, for bringing them into the cult. It really depends on the situation. And I always want to work, obviously, where the client has energy to work and help them move through their life to make it what they want it to be at this point. You mentioned earlier that when you were in a cult, it was the 1970s, which was a time of 
really major social upheaval and change. And in many ways, we're going through another time like that in 2021. And I'm wondering, have you noticed a change in like the number of clients who are contacting you or the kinds of cults that that they're involved with in recent years? My experience is from January 6th, I've had a queue of people to get into my private practice. Part of that, it, it doesn't mean that I have people waiting in line from QAnon. What that means is what's happening in our culture is affecting people who have been in cults in a way that there's more of an urgency to deal with their cult issues because they're being triggered by the news. They're being triggered by actions or inaction that our government takes. I've had more call from loved ones of people in QAnon, for instance. I also do that practice of working with loved ones of those in cults. And I consult so that they're prepared to understand what their loved one is going through while they're in the cult. But I think there's also a renaissance of cult documentaries that has also fed this public venue of what cults really look like and how they really operate. And I've had people call me and go, oh, man, I watched that Nexium expose and I realize I really have to deal with, you know, this Jewish mystical cult that I was in. But I think it's a good thing to become more aware and to take more charge of this so that it doesn't get in the way of their life. Roseanne Henry is a Littleton-based professional counselor who has specialized in cult recovery for nearly 30 years. Roseanne, thank you so much for talking with me. Appreciate the opportunity. That's our show for today. The second biggest wildfire on record in Colorado was reported a year ago Thursday. By the time the East Troublesome Fire was contained more than six weeks later, it had burned nearly 200,000 acres. Tomorrow on Colorado Edition, we get a look at some new tech in the field of wildland firefighting that could help keep residents safe. I'm Erin O'Toole. Our production team includes Henry Zimmerman, Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Our theme music was composed by Colorado musicians Brianna Harris and Johnny Burroughs. Thank you so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC.